Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the cross. We come before you with nothing of our own that we can give you. But we come, and because of the sacrifice of your Son, we can stand forgiven and freed, welcomed into your family. And so, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we pray now that you would speak to us by the power of your Spirit, through your Word, in Jesus' name, amen. There is one word constantly and consistently misunderstood or not understood at all in our world today. What do you think that word would be? And no, I'm not thinking of words like dope or essential or freedom. I'm thinking of the word love. Love means so many different things to so many different people. And part of that is because it does have different definitions and uses. It has a, a broad semantic range, you would say. We can use love to refer to romantic love or familial love or friendship or even just a strong like or affinity of anything that we, that we like, from canyons to candy. And beyond the definitions of love, we can be used in such broad ways too. Political movements, protests, parades of all kinds, every stripe, co-opt love for their use. Pop songs use it in all kinds of different ways, as do commercials and advertisements. Disney movies mean one thing by love. Sports fans mean another. And to top it off, we talk and sing and pray a lot about love in our churches. I mean, what, at this point, what does love even mean anymore? It's so confusing, so nebulous. But I believe we need to get a better handle on what love means means or what it looks like if the most important commands of all time are for us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, or if we are to truly know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, as Ephesians has told us. Like, love is clearly vital, indispensable to our faith, and yet so many of us struggle to even pin down what love means, let alone how to practically live it out in our lives. Today, I want to direct our attention to a pair of verses that I believe can help us here. So if you would please open up to Ephesians 5 in your Bibles, if you haven't already, or you can use one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look, yes, at only two verses today. You can thank me later. But... Even these two opening verses of chapter 5 are so rich in truth and relevance for us. They give us a window into what God's love looks like, which should then inform what our love as God's people is to look like. 
We aren't left wondering after this what love looks like at all. We're pointed to the ultimate example of love. So to catch everyone up here before we read this, in case you forgot or if you're new with us, in Ephesians chapter 1 to 3, we've been going through the whole book of Ephesians together, and in chapters 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul gave us this beautiful theological picture of the gospel, how God the Father chose us in love, how God the Son saves us in love, and how the Holy Spirit seals our redemption in love, and then how God has brought us together as his people in the church where we, as it happens, love one another. And these truths should dramatically impact the way we live, which is where chapter 4 has taken us. Paul says we're to now walk or to live worthy of the calling God has called us to, which includes being humble and patient and loving and pursuing unity, appreciating and, and using the many gifts that he's given to us in one another, and speaking the truth in love to one another so that we grow together. He says that we, as believers, we're no longer to walk as unbelievers anymore. We're not who we once were. We, we put on new selves now. In the last two weeks, we looked at the final paragraph of chapter 4, which really sums up some of these applications of how to live out the new self. It's really a whole list of, of practical gospel implications. And we'll read that together as we start here. Look at verse 25 in chapter 4. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. All of this leads up to what I believe is the pinnacle of these passages at the start of chapter 5. Look at it. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I don't know if you noticed, Paul's commands here are so God-centered in the same vein as he has told us to learn Christ and not grieve the Holy Spirit, he now tells us simply to imitate God, to copy him, to follow his example. It's no coincidence that this comes right after he says to forgive one another as God has forgiven us. Paul says, therefore, refers back to what's come before. However, imitating God would, of course, include more than just forgiveness. Basically, he's saying that God has treated you in a certain way. Therefore, you should now treat each other in that same way. That command, though, therefore be imitators of God, is that not wildly intimidating? 
sky-high standard? How are we supposed to imitate God? That sounds impossible, right? And God is perfect after all. All-powerful, all-knowing, holy, holy, holy. God's not limited by space or time. God's not corrupted by a sinful nature. God is eternal, almighty, transcendent, and absolutely perfect in love. I don't need to tell you, we're not that. We're not God. Much of the time, we're not even very godly. He's so far above and beyond us. So how, again, how can we imitate him? Now, first of all, let me ask. Does this tell us to imitate God perfectly? No. Does it tell us to be like God in every possible way? No. Like, even to become a God. No, of course not. Any parent here knows that their children, when they are very young, they learn by imitation. Right, for example, a baby learns to wave by copying people around them. Or they learn to speak by imitating noises with their mouths. Ba, 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 da, 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 you know? Or they learn to hold a spoon or, or to tip a cup back by seeing other people do it. Now, do they do these things on the same level or to the same degree or with the same skill? No. Often their imitation is pretty pathetic at first, <laughs> cutely pathetic. But they are still imitating someone else. And in a similar way, we are meant to learn godliness and holiness by looking to our holy God. Yes, it's a high standard. No, we won't ever be perfect, and we won't be a perfect imitation on this side of glory. And yet, we can still genuinely imitate God, even if it's a pale or clumsy imitation. But this text tells us more than simply implying that it's possible to imitate God. It gives us both a clear motivation and a clear example. All right, the, the former, our motivation, flows from who we are now in Christ. And the latter, our example, reflects what God has done for us in Christ. So first, let's talk about the why. Why should we want to imitate God in the first place? I mean, it might sound strange to you or even boring or something like that. Why should we want to do this? And then how can we be an imitator of God? I believe it all has to start this way. The imitators of God know his love for them. To imitate God, we must know his love for us. Imitators of God know his love for them. And see, how we view ourselves will determine how we follow God's example. Look at this. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So the, that illustration of kids imitating their parents is very appropriate here. Like if you've believed in Jesus, you become one of God's 
children. As John 1 says about Jesus, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And just as human children imitate their parents, we are to then imitate our Heavenly Father. You may be totally unaware of this today, but I guarantee you that you are trying to live like somebody. We're all trying to live like someone else around us has lived or is living. So who are you trying to live like today? Don't just say Jesus. <laughs> Think it through. Okay, like many of us adults, whether we wanted to or not, have tried to live like our parents. Right? We inherently learn their, their mannerisms, their language, their habits, and their values. We end up in relationships like theirs often, parenting like they did, working like them. Students who are here, most of you are at the age that you still hope to not become like your folks. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble, but there will likely be a time in just a few years when you realize, I'm my dad. <laughs> or, I'm just like my mom. <laughs> now, I know it's not so cut and dried as that all the time. Some people try not to imitate their parents at all, instead swinging the pendulum the other way, trying to be anyone but them. <laughs> You're still imitating someone, though. Because we're all influenced by a great number of people in our lives. Some good some bad. Maybe you'd love to model your life after one of your grandparents, or a brother, or a sister, another relative. Maybe your lifestyle is coming to reflect your friends or peers more and more. The way you talk, the way you dress, the things you watch or listen to or read, the places you go, physically or virtually, these all show who you're trying to imitate, who you're trying to be like. Maybe you're seeking to follow in the footsteps of a, a superior at work or a predecessor of yours, trying to emulate their career path or their work success. I know that I would love to end up like certain pastors I know whom I greatly respect. Maybe you are overly influenced by so-called influencers online. Like the list could go on. Who are you wanting to be like today? Now, it's not wrong to want to be like other people. It's totally natural for us to do so. We can end up following some bad examples, but we can emulate good ones too. But fellow Christian, have you seriously considered your calling to imitate God before? To live like him. Do you notice anything in common about those we seek to live toward to be like in our lives? We only try to imitate people we admire, respect, appreciate, or care about. You know the old saying that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery? I don't know if it's even possible to flatter God as he is purely good, 
But perhaps we could say in his case that imitation is the sincerest form of admiration. Or even worship. The more we love God, the more we'll want to become like him. We will naturally want to shape our lives after his likeness. I don't believe you when you say you love the Lord if you don't want to grow up to be like him. So, how are we supposed to imitate God? In what ways, specifically? Because like we already established, we can't be like him in everything. Like We can never become infinite, self-existent, or omnipresent like he is, even in heaven, okay? Well, theologians often try to group God's attributes into two categories. Big word warning, all right? Some attributes, they say, are communicable, which means that God shares them with his creation. Some are incommunicable, which means they describe God and God alone doesn't share them. So those things I just mentioned, those would be incommunicable. They are unshareable. No one else, for example, can be omnipotent like God, or else there would be more than one God. But his communicable attributes are things that we can actually reflect God in, like God is patient, and we can be patient. God is righteous, loving, holy, kind, like even if we can't be perfect in these, we can be like him in degree. Now, trying to distinguish between attributes like this can be a bit arbitrary and even unnecessary. But I think it can be helpful here because it shows what we can actually try to imitate. Like, because God is almighty doesn't mean that you should just spend all your time at the gym and get super jacked. I'm just trying to imitate God here. Mighty arm and outstretched hand and all. No, we can't be almighty. However, because God is merciful, we should be seeking to be merciful. Jesus said so too. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful, which is why we're told to forgive as he forgave in the verse right before this in Ephesians. Or we're also told more than once in Scripture to seek to be holy or even perfect like God is. Listen to Peter's words. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And not that we'll reach that goal right now, but we will one day. And we can aspire to it even now. As we repent of sins, the Spirit reveals to us. And as we set our lives apart for the Lord. We are called to be God's holy people here and now. We're also told to shape our love after God's love. Like in 1 John 4.11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so, really, that is actually the key, that love of God, to wanting to imitate God. Knowing the love of God. 
It's not just that we love him. Yes, that's important, but it's not most important. We must first know his love for us. That's what most inspires us and what most motivates us to be like him. And the order of that is actually crucial here. Because think about it. If we wanted to imitate God just because we admire him and love him ourselves, we would always be working crazy hard to muster up some more love for him. We'd, feel, we'd always feel pressure to perform better and reach an impossible standard to try to make God love us through our performance, and it would never be enough, no matter how hard we try. But if instead we want to imitate God because he loves us, takes the pressure off, can breathe, we work from a place of perfect security. We don't need to impress God. We, we don't need to endear ourselves to him or earn his love. It, it can purify our motives. Like we imitate him because he is so beautiful to us, attractive, benevolent. He's our perfect, loving, merciful, holy Father in heaven, and we simply and naturally want to become like him. This is why Paul tells us here, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children or dearly loved children. Brian Chappell explains that God's imperatives and our obedience rest on that loving relationship. They do not form the relationship. We obey because we are loved. We are not loved because we obey. The love of our Father precedes and stimulates the obedience of his children. We are to forgive and live and love as dearly loved children, imitating the one who already is our Father, not performing to bribe God to become our Father. Like, notice what Paul does not say here. He does not say, be imitators of God as people God happens to like. No, we're much more than that to God. We're his children. And he, but he doesn't even say to imitate God as accepted, adopted, or merely tolerated children. You can bring someone into your family and still be cold to them. No, we are God's beloved children. We're Remarkably precious to him. God doesn't mainly see us as struggling saints or beleaguered believers or frustrating followers. He looks at us like a brand new dad gazes adoringly into his child's face. He doesn't begrudge us belonging to him. We're his beloved children. Wow. 
now we're called to reproduce our new family likeness. But it's so much easier to do when we first realize just how deeply loved we are. And verse 2 goes on to give us the greatest way we are to imitate God. It says, and walk in love. Again, Paul says to walk in a certain way, which means to live in a certain way. It's speaking of a lifestyle. So our lifestyle should be characterized by love. And walk in love. And this makes sense if God truly defines love, like God is love. To, to imitate God would be to imitate his love. But notice, instead of just leaving us with some vague notion of what that means, Paul gives us the ultimate, concrete example of what it means to walk in love. Look at verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Jesus Christ is our example. He shows us how it's done. So now we can look at how God loved us and clearly have something to imitate. As, and his love doesn't just terminate on us and our enjoyment of it, we see, because imitators of God then live out his love for them. To imitate God, we must live out his love, showing it to or sharing it with others. If we are going to truly walk in love, our, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions should be all impacted. After all, that's how Christ loved us, with everything he had. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Each of those things should shock us when we think about it. Christ loved us. And Christ gave himself up for us. This means that when we think of, of God loving us, we shouldn't think of him just sending down good feelings, positive vibes, warm fuzzies from above. We should picture him sending a person to us, his one and only son, whom he loved and who would die for us. We shouldn't imagine God loved us by coming alongside us like a friend does, group hugging us, cheering us on, affirming us in who we are in and of ourselves. No, his love for us reveals that we needed help. We needed saving from ourselves. We shouldn't imagine that, that God's love for us is just some superficial, sentimental feeling. No, his love was extremely costly, excruciatingly painful, deathly sacrificial, demonstrated love. He, he gave himself up. It says, Christ loving us meant nails here, blood everywhere. Christ loving us meant a slow death by asphyxiation and exposure. Christ loving us, his love meant facing the terror of God's wrath against sin on our behalf. 
case you don't know this today, Jesus' death on the cross shows how much God loves you. It shows how much our sin, our going against God's ways, costs. It costs death, but it also shows how far God would go in order to rescue us from it and to bring us into his family. He gave it all. He gave himself up. Greater love has never been seen. Hope and pray that if you don't, that you will come to know his love today in your own heart. That you would believe that Jesus really did this for you to bring you back to God. That he took your place in death, giving himself up so that you could share his place in life, true life. If you want to do this, or even if you just have questions about this or want to discuss it, please talk with us. Come see me. Talk with a friend who you came with today. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain because Jesus gave it all. So now, for everyone, let's observe how Christ loved us and then follow his example. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we're not only to live as beloved children of God ourselves, but as the beloved child of God lived and loved. His love is most clearly described here as a a self-giving, sacrificial love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Love means giving. Love means sacrifice for the sake of others. As one scholar put it, Christ handing himself over to death for his people was the supreme demonstration of his love for them because he is both the ground and model of their love. Costly sacrificial love is to be the distinguishing mark of their lives and their relationships with one another. So what does this kind of love look like? I'll give you some ideas, though they're not exhaustive. And I don't mean this in any way as a guilt trip or anything. Many of you are already doing these things in your life, and you might not even realize that you are living out what Christ has done for you. Loving like Christ looks like giving of your time in order to serve one another. And it can be anywhere, on a music team, or a tech team, or hospitality, or children's ministry, or outreach, leading a small group, hosting a small group, whatever. Or loving like Christ looks like giving generously whenever you hear of someone in need. Or maybe giving monthly to, to sponsor a child in need through compassion. Loving like Christ looks like sacrificing your weekend to help a friend out. Loving like Christ looks like giving up your preferences to honor someone else's. Loving like Christ looks like sacrificing gas money, ouch, (laughs) to visit a lonely saint. Loving like Christ looks like using your energy to make sandwiches for the homeless in Ottawa. 
Loving like Christ looks like willingly giving of yourself to care for your kids, parents. Sacrificially prioritizing them with your time and attention and energy. Letting them consume some of the best years of your life. And gladly so. Loving like Christ looks like on the other end of life. Gently caring for your aging parents. Loving like Christ looks like surrendering your me time to God for the sake of others. Loving like Christ looks like overlooking offenses, forgiving people their sins, giving up what seems to be your right or feels like your right to anger or bitterness or revenge. Loving like Christ looks like offering to cook a meal or babysit kids or clean a home without expecting anything in return. Loving like Christ looks like visiting someone in hospital or in prison. Loving like Christ looks like giving up your morning binge watch or maybe fasting for a time in order to intentionally pray for a brother and sister in distress. Musical artist Toby Mack wrote a song called Love Feels Like after seeing how, how loving both his aging father and his young son meant so much sacrifice in his life. He's saying this, I am tired, I am drained, but the fight in me remains. I am weary, I am worn, like I've never been before. This is harder than I thought, harder than I thought it'd be, harder than I thought, taking every part of me, but empties never felt so full. This is what love feels like. Poured out, used up, still giving, stretching me out to the end of my limits. This is what love, this is what real love feels like. All the ideas I gave only scratch the surface. And none of them really requires shedding blood yet. But all of them, in a way, do treat other people's lives as more important than your own. And so we give up our lives in order to love them as Christ loved us. And in so doing, we begin to look like or even smell like Christ. Look at the, the final phrase in this verse with me. It says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's, of course, referring to the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings that people made. They would they'd bring an animal or a grain offering, sacrifice to be offered to God on an altar. And as the sacrifice burned, the Bible says it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And these sacrifices, really in a way, would both appease God's wrath against sin, and they would please his spirit, his heart. 
Now, we don't actually have to do any of that anymore because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. He made God permanently favorable toward us. As Hebrews 7 says, we read this earlier together, that Christ has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So we no longer have to sacrifice anything today in order to appease God or to please him. And yet, when, whenever we do show sacrificial love, giving of ourselves for the sake of others, we echo Christ's sacrifice and thus are also pleasing to God like his was. He, like he was. His sacrifice was considered a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, and now so are ours. That might sound a bit jarring when we first read that because we don't think of a, a crucifixion as something pleasant. Because it wasn't. And yet, the aroma of sacrificial love was pleasing to God. What the cross accomplished made it all worth it. As Toby Mack sings further on in his song, he says, it's worth everything you put in. For everything you put in, even when it's hard, even when it's costly, even when it hurts, even when it legitimately feels like you're giving yourself up in order to love. Brian Chappell says it this way, the smell of Jesus, the fragrance of the Savior that we are to have waft from our lives also includes offering and sacrifice. There is much in that image that is pleasant, but it also reminds us that the fragrance from an altar does not come without some giving of self, an offering, and some dying of another, a sacrifice. There is no life of love without a degree of giving and dying. All who would be like Jesus must offer and sacrifice themselves. That might sound intimidating, but it's also comforting. This is the path of the cross. And the path of the cross leads to glory. Sometimes we might assume that if we follow the Lord, it shouldn't be difficult. It shouldn't be painful. But this shows that what is most fragrant to God involves giving and dying. When things hurt, it doesn't necessarily mean God is displeased. He may be very pleased. After all, he was very pleased with his son Jesus. Think of some of the, the smells that you absolutely love in life. I love walking into our house to the smell of my wife's cooking. It's mouth-watering. Maybe you love the smell of fresh bread or bacon, spring flowers, the, the fresh air after a rain. You know what smell God loves? 
the smell of sacrificial love. Because that's the smell of Jesus. So, if you want to please God more and more with your life, again, learning to live like who we already are in God's sight because we are pleasing to him in Christ. If you want to live like that, if you want to now show your love to him, think of what you might offer to him on the altar today. For him to use as he pleases. Might be your schedule or your calendar. Might be your finances or bank balance, your home. Might be your body, your strength, your health, your gifts or abilities, your kindness or forgiveness. Whatever you have, like whatever love people need around you, how might you offer it to them? Can you place yourself on the altar and trust the Lord with it all? Because no matter who it is that we're trying to love, our families, fellow believers, our neighbors, or even our enemies, the one to whom our love is most directed is God himself. Did you notice there in verse 2 how it describes Jesus' sacrifice? Look at it. Who did he give himself up for? Us. Right? Right there. He gave himself up for us. Who, but who did he give himself up to? God. Right? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the same way, we offer sacrificial love for others, but we offer it to God. So we imitate God by, by living out his love for us, for others' sake. But this love for others is ultimately for and to the Lord. Why is this so important? Well, how often do you feel like the person you're supposed to love is unworthy of your love? A lot, right? Like, the, the person who hurt you doesn't deserve your forgiveness. The, the person in need has themselves to blame for their predicament or their crisis. The people at church can be so unappreciative or ungrateful. The people at the shelter or in prison deserve to be there. The, the lonely person at home or in the hospital never did anything for you. They didn't show up when you were in need. The kids that you're taking care of can be so maddening. That the family you're called to love can be so loveless. 
And here's what we need to realize in all those times. They may indeed not deserve any of our love. They may never be worthy of it, but Jesus is worthy. Jesus deserves our love. And Jesus is worthy. He deserves our love. So we do it all for him, and we don't look back, even if it costs us everything, for we know it will be worth it all. God loves us, and that's all we really need. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Heavenly Father, would you instill your love in our hearts today? You see our, our coldness, you see our indifference, you see our sadness, our distance from others. Lord, would you fill us with yourself? May we overflow to love one another as you have loved us through your Son. May we see who we are in your eyes, that we would see how loved we are as your children. And may you change us to be like you. Help us imitate you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.